You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. Tonight, we take a look at some of history's greatest sayings, such as carrying a torch and out of the mouth of babes. It's Monday night. It's 7 p.m. Pacific and 10 p.m. Eastern. And it must be time for Mission Log Live. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm Heather Parker. Tonight, we're talk- talking to all of you, our Star Trek friends and family, about Star Trek Strange New Worlds Episode 6, Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach. As always, we want to hear from you. Um, you can pop into the Facebook chat. Um You know what to do. Just click on the Zoom link and give us a ring by using the one tap from your smartphone or call us at 669-900-6833 and enter the meeting code and password you see in the show notes. I'm glad to be back. Um, Heather, I'm glad to have you back. I know that the uh, the mission loggers were tired of seeing my face over the course of successive weeks, and I'm glad that John Champion was able to break it up for us in there with Char. But here we are. We're back here. We're talking Mission Log Live. We're talking Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and we're talking to the chat. So let's say to hide the, some of the chat members uh, here. What I love about the chat is that uh, if you remove like all the Pauls, there are probably like three or four other people in there. So let's see. The Pauls are here. Hello, Paul. Uh, hello, Matthew. Hello, Spencer, nice to see you, Scott. Um, and I love that, uh, Heather, I love that you're engaging with the chat. I think that's fabulous. Uh, that, that's one thing that I have uh, a little bit of an issue with because I'm all thumbs when it comes to keyboards and uh, I like calling out people and pronouncing the names badly in chat. That's what I do. That's my special skill. Uh, Wayne, uh, great to see you here. Uh, David, thank you. Thank you ba- uh, for being back with us. Let's see how many Pauls are here. I think all the Pauls are here. And if they're not, I'm going to say that they are anyway. Jane, uh, let's see here. Cooley. Thank you for being here, Cooley. John Arminio. Uh, I'm going to say one of the coolest last names in our chat because I just like saying Arminio. Uh, thank you all for being here. Carlos, Carly, uh, Chris Riker. We have a great show for all of you tonight. Um, it's not the lightest of episodes, that's for sure. Uh, but it is something that I think that when Star Trek does Star Trek right, it gives us a lot to talk about. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But we also have the all the other mission logs, all the other stuff that's coming up this week. So, uh, Heather, why don't you uh, give uh, our audience here uh, what's happening, the rundown of what's happening with mission log this week? What is happening this week on Mission Log? I can do that. Mm -hmm. This Thursday, the standard Mission Log continues with Faces, the one where Belana comes, well, face-to-face with her face, (laughs) (laughs) a kind of face and a face of someone else's face, lots of faces. Uh, Elsewhere with Roddenberry Podcast, make sure you're tuned into Mission Log, the Orville. Captain Mike Richards and Jessica Lynn Verdi are also quantum driving forward with their current episode recap of season three, episode one, Electric Sheep, available now with episode two covering Shadow Realms, ready to drop this Wednesday, June 15th. But wait, there's more Mission Log Prodigy. Recently had an excellent interview with executive producer and and writer Aaron 
Walkie. Is that right? That's right. I know him. And I just have mm-hmm. never said his last name. Uh, check that out while we all wait for Prodigy's return. I don't know about you guys, but I'm like waiting on my seat, right. edge of my seat to find out. I cannot wait. Um, you can find Mission Log Prodigy, Mission Log The Orville, and Mission Log Engage video exclusively at YouTube slash Roddenberry Entertainment. And make sure you stay in touch with all of our podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com. There's some funny things going on in the chat. So Spencer says, does Mission Log slice? Does it dice? Can it core an apple? It, can t- it definitely can. Uh, I can sell Mission Log. Like, <laughs> There's lots. There's lots that Mission Log can do. And wait for, <laughs> that must have been from the wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. <laughs> so we're going to get to the main feature here, as we always do with Mission Log at the very beginning of the show, or kind of like right after the beginning of the show. We're going to jump right into the recap here of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, Season 1, Episode 6. Can you believe, Heather, that we're in Episode 6? We're in the back half of the season already. It's not fair. Like, I I want 22 episodes of Star Trek again. Um, that would be amazing. I can't believe that we're this this far through, and I'm, I don't want it to end ever. I would say it's my favorite Star Trek, but I say that of all the Star Treks. Um, so I'm just excited to see where it goes uh, and, and how it ends. Right. Well, at least it, it'll, be a, it'll be an ending of sorts. It'll be really interesting to see, like, where we're going to wrap up in the next three episodes. But for tonight... Let's talk about lift us where suffering cannot reach. During a routine cartographic survey of the Magellan system, Captain Pike reminisces upon a rescue mission there a decade ago and one that almost killed him. Cadet Uhura joins him in the turbo lift to meet with La'an and learn her many lessons regarding security detail. Upon reaching the bridge, Spock informs Pike that a non-Federation shuttle is under attack by an unknown cruiser, which also engages the Enterprise. The political gloves are off and the cruiser is shot down and crashes upon the surface of a nearby moon. The shuttlecraft is also severely damaged, forcing Pike to transport three life signs aboard. An older man, a young boy, and a woman who he recognizes instantly as she does him, or at least the 10-year younger Lieutenant Pike who saved her during the rescue mission he just reminisced about in the turbolift moments earlier. A nearly incohesive Pike barely introduces number one to Alora and Gamal, the elder Magellan male and the boy's father, but only in the strictest biological sense. They are escorted to sickbay for medical checkup, but not before Nurse Chapel interrupts Dr. Mabenga's private time with his daughter. Alora explains to all that the boy is the first servant of the Magellan people, their most revered holy figure, and the embodiment of their belief system of science, service, and sacrifice. She believes he was the target for a ransom by renegades who seek to disrupt the Magellan homeworld. Gamal, who is also his personal and private physician, in examining the first servant proves to Chapel and Mabenga just how advanced Magellan medical science is compared to Federation technology. Gamal currently explains that Magellan medical science has eliminated all pain, suffering, and disease on his planet, which commands Mabenga's full attention. Lahan assembles an away team to investigate the remains of the attack cruiser, and after securing entry into the wreckage, Spock finds a foreign device amidst the rubble. Alora also finds an alarming piece of evidence, an oath coin, which is worn only by the first servant's most trusted guards. Pike offers his assistance to help Alora find the oath breaker as they both return to Majalis to oversee the celebration's preparations. Meanwhile, Spock arrives in sickbay to show Gamal what he believes to be a neural dampener, which takes Gamal by surprise. Suddenly, the first servant dazzles Spock with his mastery over subspace mechanics. Spock realizes that this child is far more special than most can even comprehend. 
In the commissary, La'an's investigation requires a short lesson with Uhura to teach her security lesson six, knowing to bend the rules. As the chief hands over a box of contraband data chips for Uhura to translate immediately. In sickbay, Dr. Mabenga confides in Gamal about a patient who can benefit from Magellan medical treatments, to which Gamal retorts that treatments to non-Magellans would indeed be possible if Magellus joined the Federation. On Magellus, Pike and Allure's ruse to inspect every guard's oath coin succeeds, revealing the traitor within. But before he is detained, he grabs Allura hostage by a knife point, but she wrestles him to the ground and dispatches him with his own weapon. That evening, Pike ensures Allura's safety by agreeing to stay with her. Soon after, they reminisce about when they first met and revisit the feelings they still have for each other, and not just between them, but between Majalis and the Federation. Meanwhile, in Uhura's quarters, she meets with La'an with the information that the security chief was hoping Uhura would translate from those data chips. In sickbay, Mabanga discovers that the first servant was able to safely release Rukia from the transporter buffer to play hopscotch with him. Mabanga returns her to the safety of the pattern buffer and asks the first servant to keep this their secret. Suddenly, Gamal enters to to escort the first servant from sickbay. Pike has returned to the Enterprise to hear Uhura's urgent report and is further annoyed when Una tells him he needed to hear this without Alora present. Uhura explains that the first servant shuttlecraft was attacked by colonists from Prospect 7, a Magellan colony. And before any questions can be answered, Mabenga informs the bridge that Gamal and the first servant have escaped sickbay. Pike rushes to the transporter room, but is too late to stop Gamal and the first servant from beaming off the ship. Suddenly, Gamal rematerializes back on the Enterprise, but without the first servant, whose life signs are detected on a nearby combat cruiser, similar to the one encountered earlier. And as the cruiser tries to warp free from Enterprise's tractor beam, it explodes with all life forms aboard. Pike is at a loss for words, which none would assuage Alor's horror of what happened. He also wants to know how the first servant was beamed off Enterprise. Uhura believes that Gamal is their prime suspect because thanks to security lesson number seven, Uhura has left no stone unturned. She has proof that Gamal's bio patterns of both he and the first servant were taken just before they beamed off the ship. The evidence is enough for La'an to arrest Gamal and place him in custody. Spock, however, has been monitoring something very interesting since the cruiser's explosion. After attacking the tech, he and Captain Pike trace the first servant's transporter signal to a cargo crate inside the Enterprise, where they find him safe and unharmed. Pike contacts Alora and delivers the first servant into her care, where she prepares him for the ceremony. And as he tries to pry the truth from Alora, she diffuses his urgency as the first servant's ascension begins. In the Enterprise brig, Gamal confesses to Una that he conspired with the rebels from Prospect 7 because he wanted to save his son from ascending. And knowing that Pike has already returned to Majalis means it's too late to stop what is about to happen, as the procession of the First Servant's ascendants moves its way through the loving throngs and crowds of the Magellan people. Pike is then invited with a handful of loyal guards into an underground chamber where Alora allows him to witness the final stage of ascendance. Horrified and helpless, Pike watches a terrified young boy accept his fate as he is plugged into a machine which will feed off his neural energy in order to usher in a new dawn of prosperity for the whole of Majalis. Later in Alora's quarters, Pike sees with disgust at the Majalan creed of science, service, and sacrifice, and what just happened to an innocent child. However, she reminds him that the life of one child has spared the suffering of the entire Majalan civilization until the next first servant is called.
Pike leaves Alora in tears and promises that Starfleet will hear of all that has transpired on Majalis. On Enterprise, Gamal is released into the custody of Prospect 7, where he believes he can help protect future first servants as he was unable to protect his own son. Before departing, he and Mabenga finally come together as healers to try and find a roadmap to cure Mabenga's daughter. Pike, alone in his quarters with drink in hand, stares out the window at Majalis and reflects on yet another young and innocent life he was unable to save. The end. I'll take a breath right there. (sighs) (sighs) Wow. (laughs) Excellent job. That was a lot. That was a lot. It was a heavy episode. It is a very heavy episode. And I'm I'm using a a little bit of kind of like the chuckling and laughter just to kind of diffuse just how heavy it was. But we are going to have to eventually meet this episode head on, as we always do, with our own observations. So, uh, Heather, uh, I just want to start with you. Uh, what were your first initial re- um, responses, reactions to this episode? How did this affect you? This was definitely a hard episode to, excuse me, to watch. Um, and I was uh, thankful that a couple people didn't quite spoil anything online, but put something out there that it might be heavy if you're going through a lot, which I have been the last few weeks. Um I love this episode, and I think that it is the type of episode that Star Trek does best um, when there there really isn't an answer at the end. Um, there are a lot of questions asked and, and no real answers. And in those cases, I often end up feeling very helpless. And with this episode, I admired the fact that it ended on a positive note with Mbenga and Kamal um, starting to work together to find a cure for Dr. Mbenga's daughter. And then that somber scene at the very end, which the cinematography in the show is so hot. Um, It's so good. But that final scene, just kind of marking the solemnity of the moment of, you know, where do you go from here? Are we any better? Uh, is is there a wrong or right? Is there anything else that he could have done? And those, those answers aren't out there. They're there for us to think about and talk about uh, for as long as Star Trek shall live. And I certainly see that happening. What did you think about this episode? I mean, I agree with, you know, with what you're saying. I think that when Star Trek is at its absolute best, when drama or when our entertainment, I think, is at its absolute best is when it leaves us with more questions than answers. Because I think what Star Trek has always traditionally done for us as the audience, it allows us to look at all of the all of the evidence that we've been presented in this episode and try and formulate what we believe is the right path forward. Or is it? Right. Because sometimes, you know, we respond in a very emotional, very human way. I mean, that's kind of like one part of the 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 formula of what made the original series so successful and something that we've brought up in Mission Log many times, the the balance of ethos, pathos and logos, you know, with Kirk, Spock and McCoy. And I think that one of my most guiding axioms, I think, in the entirety of my fandom in Star Trek is the Vulcan philosophy of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Now apply that to this episode. And what can we derive of that from 
looking at this culture of which we don't necessarily agree with the end of what happened to the first servant, but how does the, the Vulcan philosophy apply to that? Because the needs of the many do outweigh the needs of the Majalis people. Do they, do they their needs outweigh the needs of the few Pike's response to this, the Starfleet response to this, or the one, the first servant's response to this? It's very easy for us to project that this is the wrong thing to do. I mean, we are, you know, we're empathetic, we're sympathetic. We, we believe that because this child has been robbed of his future or her future, whoever the next first servant is going to be, that this is a barbaric ritual. But what Alara said at the end was, one child spares the suffering of millions. Is that necessarily a bad thing? So I'm not... I'm presenting these things as questions through the prism of Star Trek as we are wont to do, because I think that that's exactly what this episode is about. It's not necessarily about what is right or what is wrong, is what is what can we understand from our own perspective? And are we so inflexible as to not see another cultures? That's That's the way that I perceive this. I don't think that I'm too far off, but um, that's just my opinion. No, I think that's great perspective um, because it's something that we we don't always think about because uh, we're so far removed. Um, I don't spend a lot of time in other countries, and and it's it's not something that I would have thought about. So I appreciate that. Since mm-hmm. people were bringing this up in the chat, I feel like I have to <laughs> mention Ursula Le Guin um, mm-hmm. because this episode definitely was inspired um, by a piece of short fiction written by her um, historic science fiction author that I highly recommend everyone check out. But the short story is called "The Ones Who Walk." away from Omelas. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that short story, um, the narrator depicts a, a summer festival in the utopian city of Omelas, whose prosperity depends on the perpetual misery of a single child. So it's a story that we've seen before. Um, and I definitely think that, she, you know, Ursula Le Guin deserves to be mentioned, deserves a credit, because we know from listening not only to interviews with Alex Kurtzman, but um, with Akiva Goldsman, and some of the discovery writers that uh, Le Guin has been a huge, huge influence um, on discovery. For example, that the, excuse me, the short fiction story was basically the inspiration for Sukal and the Burden. So I definitely, I'll try to pull my links and put them into the chat so that people can go grab them. But if you hadn't read that short story before, uh, I certainly recommend checking it out because Again, it's these these big questions, and I don't know how to answer. Um, so I'm I'm really curious as to what our listeners have to say about this episode. I, I saw a lot of mixed opinions in the Discord, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that they've got a lot of wonderful insight to bring as well. I think that you know, in the discussion of all of this, you know, one of the things that uh, I wanted to. Um, to at least propose. And this change, change is kind of like the algebra of our emotional attachment to the abuse of a child, what we perceive as being, you know, the abuse of the first servant as a child, a child who literally, um, even though, uh, you know, Alora keeps saying that he has chosen for himself, you know, he has made his own decision. He really didn't. You know, he was kind of yeah. forced into this position because he's a child and didn't have an advocate speaking up for him, like his father, mm-hmm. who was detained on the Enterprise. So, if, say, the first servant was an adult, would we have had the same reaction? 
I, I don't think so. Well, I don't know. I mean, because I, I can only speak for myself, right? Um, and, and my thoughts on life. I think that the fact that they used the child, which I know that this, this wasn't a specific episode meant to mirror thing like the shooting that happened a while ago. I've seen a lot of conversation around that. Um, yes, the episode is definitely written as a reflection of its own time. And it did use a child and they did go as far as to even showcase to us how, how much, how much of a gift that child's life was that he was so intelligent. Um, and, and this is like the hope of the future basically are these children, I think because children can't consent and adults can consent, it would be a different story for many people. Um, is it a fair or great question to have to answer? No. no. Um, but I definitely think that if, if being a child and someone who cannot consent for themselves with the addition of the stuff that we're experiencing in the real world, it, it hits pretty hard. You know, uh, one of the things I was, I was racking my brain, I said, this feels so familiar, not from the story that you referenced just earlier, but this felt so familiar from something that I've just seen in recent past. And because we have Paul Harvath on the line, I blame him for, for basically <laughs> like influencing me go, to go down or through actually the Stargate. Because in Stargate season three, there was an episode and Heather, I actually texted you about this because I'd like, yeah. am, am I wrong about this? Or I, I think I'm, I think this is a good reference point. But the episode is called Learning Curve. And the premise of the episode is that there are children on this planet whose intelligences are built up to a point where they are then offered to, to the benefit of their entire adult community, but leaving the children behind as empty husks. I felt that that was also very kind of like the same kind of spiritual energy that was going on here, because in the end, we saw that whatever happened to the first servant left them as an empty husk, you know, of, 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 of biological matter. Um, but in, in learning curves case, it just basically left these children kind of um, mindless, you know, and uh, w without any kind of repercussion for a future. So that, that in, in turn kind of inspired me to think about, is it because it's children and because that they have been, it's interesting that they're robbed of the future that they're, they're supposed to be able to help to build based on their gifts, based on their intelligence, but they're never able to participate in that future themselves. So where's the balance of this equation? Is it the prosperity is fair because of one sacrifice or because robbing of, of, of uh, that future prosperity of that? Of obviously, in the first servant's case, that intelligent child, someone who, someone who basically put Spock on his heels with his mastery of subspace mechanics. Where does that go, right? How could that also have been applied, you know, to the future of these people? You know, there's a certain short-sightedness to like we can't apply this intelligence in some other way, right? <laughs> right? Maybe that, even like, like you know. I'm sorry. Go ahead. They're, they're such an advanced civilization that they don't have any disease. You can't use some of, of your, you know, magic technology to find, like, I know that she said they had tried to find a solution, yada, yada, but I, it's hard for me to believe that there's really not another option out there to at least power their planet without a kid versus in this machine, like something, I don't know. 
I mean, I think that one of the things, and Paul, we'll get to you in a second. One of the things that was glossed over that could have been a possible option for these people is admission into the Federation, the sharing of culture, the sharing of technology, you know, the sharing of being able to build this relationship that Pike and Alora were trying to establish with kind of like this, this parallel of their own relationship. Like, how do we, you know, bridge our two cultures? Same thing with Mabenga and Gamal. How do we bridge our two cultures in order to share and reap the rewards of all of our benefits? Right. Well, and why is she like Alora told us two or three times we did not join the Federation? Like, why? Why didn't you want to join the Federation just because you like doing things your way? Like, we never really got the explanation for that, as far as I'm concerned, right? I mean, they were very insular for a very specific reason. And we saw the reason in the shock horror that Pike had on his face and the way that mm-hmm. he looked at Alora at the end. It's like, I don't think that Alora, like, she was kind of like the allegory of, I don't want the Federation to look on our people the way that Pike is looking at me right now, right? With this kind of like this, um, this disgust and kind of like this judgment, like, but at the same time though, she has every right to say, how dare you judge us as a culture that you don't understand. I think that's a fair point that needs to be looked at from the Star Trek prism. Not necessarily it's a right or wrong. It's just, you have to look at it from the, the, almost kind of like the dispassionate standpoint of a Vulcan, Um, which leads me to like one last thing before we jump into the callers is that I would have really liked to have seen a Pike Spock Una moment at the end where Spock brought up something like this, like, you know, to, to Chris, like, I know that you feel a certain way, but you have to like, take a look at it from kind of like the vantage point of what Alara was saying without him, this future that, uh, of technology, of medicine, of things that possibly could, you know, benefit the rest of us, them definitely as a species wouldn't exist. So is the cost of one young life, you know, um, worth the prosperity of an entire world? Again, going back to that Vulcan mm-hmm. axiom. So that's a great, I mean, it's, it's great food to think about. It's great to chew on. Uh, and let's jump into our first caller, who's obviously going to have all the answers for us because his name's Paul. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Paul, how are you doing? Heather and Norman, it's so good to see you all. Um, man, I, <laughs> I, I, let me run through this episode with you at a little different track. I, first thing I, I was watching it and I'm like, oh my God, is it, is it pike muck? Is that what's going on here? You know, he ends up with this, you know, girlfriend who shows up and then they fly over a, a city and it reminded me of Serenity or not Serenity, uh, um, Firefly, right? It just sort of the flyover and the fact he's, you know, with a former flame and it's like, where is this going? And then they go into this room of, you know, regalty, right? And you, all the pomp and circumstance and it reminded me of like one of the prequels to star wars and i'm like all of a sudden it's hitting me going all right so they are showing they can do serenity ish and they can do star wars ish and then they hit me with this this child sacrifice and of course ascension and it's like there's stargate so i'm just sort of rolling through it i'm i'm thinking this this girl is some sort of conniving person who wants to get with pike you know blah 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 and which is part of it but Man, the Star Trek thing just hit me right in the head when they showed the, you know, the corpse of the previous one. And then they they hook up to this this child and the sheer terror on his face. What a brilliant young actor he is, along mm-hmm. with the um, 
the young daughter of Mabenga. I, I think she's very enjoyable so far. So, yeah, it, it's all over the map for me. I'm still digesting it from about an hour ago, um, along with the Chicago pizza from the Stargate convention we had last yes. weekend. So <laughs> that deep dish was excellent. Um, so, yeah, I I don't know. There's there's a lot of meaning to it, but I'm just, I'm just still, um, it's not my favorite by far. I mean, last week was by far and away one of my most favorite episodes ever. And it was very tough for, for me to enjoy anything after that, unless it was, you know, I don't, I don't know. That one was just so spectacular, but well, this one I think is going to age well over time for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the sort of hidden message kind of jobs. Uh, it's a little bit Hunger Games, a little bit. There's a Doctor Who episode about uh, the whale running the the star. Um, mm-hmm. a, a doctor, uh, an eleventh Doctor episode that's very similar. So, yeah, I I, I don't know. I uh, I get the message and it hit me like a two by four right across the head. <laughs> Like, bonk, bonk, bonk on the head. You're yeah. saying? Can I, I want to ask a question because I've seen some feedback from people like, should Star Trek have not gone this far to, to child sacrifice? Is that not Star Trek? Is that like, I don't I, know. I, you know, I it, think- it I think it goes like to, I'm going to take it tangentially to a taste of Armageddon all the way back to the original series. People were basically in the, in the war between um, uh, like M&R and Bendikar, you had basically coordinates that told you that this area of your planet was hit. Please report to a disintegration booth. That's it. No one spoke. No one had any advocates to speak for them because the politicians have already spoken for them based on treaty for 500 years. So people just walked to their deaths because it served the greater good. Now, this is obviously horrific because it's a child, but it's horrific because of our own moral projection of what we believe is abuse. But what happens when you when you interact with a culture that doesn't see it as so? And isn't that the Star Trek way of saying that in understanding the greater aspects of the universe, we have to understand, not necessarily respect, but at least understand the different ways that different cultures go about, you know, their own version of prosperity and, and ensuring the future of their planet. So that's kind of like a difficult thing to wrestle with when you're looking at this, like the moral we know is outrageous. You know, because obviously we human beings in our own morality and the way that, you know, we see the world, of course, that's the way that the allegory of Pike is in this episode. He's outraged. You know, he is betrayed. You know, he is beside himself because he didn't with all of the power and the influence that he had aboard a starship and as a Starfleet captain and his representation of the Federation, he couldn't change anything. He couldn't interfere that has to be in and of itself something that's informing him of maybe a next decision somewhere in the next 10 years of his life where he's going to interfere. So I always, I always like how that message is hidden in some of these episodes where Pike's like, I, I, don't, I don't recognize that at first, but somewhere in my subconscious, it's going to make me act. And I think because he didn't save this child here when he could have, of course, violating like so many different international or you know, intergalactic laws that he's going to do that probably and overcompensate for that for the seven that he does save, you know, later on in the future. So that's just 
me. I don't know. Am I rambling? I think I am. I, this is no, what happens when the coffee. <laughs> well, your name's on the show, so you can ramble. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a paying attendee, so I'll ramble a little bit too. Uh, the um, you know, I just wasn't ready for it. I kept watching all these other sub subplots that I sort of really found interesting. I think you, um, the relationship between um, Uhura and Laan, right mm-hmm. there, is very similar. She she is now coaching the way Pike runs the ship. She let her, she let Uhura present the material because it was hers. Mm-hmm. You know that that's. Not necessarily the way that kind of thing happens, particularly like in grad school scenarios. You know, it's like, do this work for me and I'll present it, uh, you know, as as the person supplying you the opportunity. Um, I think that is a really good model to show how leadership can work as a trickle down and then from a subordinate doing the same thing. Also, I think number one is um, when she's on the ship by herself, just a couple seemingly throwaway lines uh, shows her leadership and her sense of logic follows Pikes. And, and she also is sort of understanding. I think those are important threads that we need to, that I hooked on to, um, you know, philosophically, I'm just going to have to digest this one for a while. I mean, is there, is there a big difference, you know, between having one child save your entire civilization fundamentally is what I'm gathering from this versus drafting armies of 18 year olds to go kill each other. You know, I think that's the message they're sending home to us or, you know, when, when even younger in some of the, um, you know, conflicts in, in Africa and things, and, and you get thinking about those sort of things, which is, I think what it was meant to do. Um, yeah, it, it's, I'm man, I don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna, I hope I don't, I hope I don't have nightmares about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, I'm going to let you. Um, I'm going to let you digest that for a second. I don't want to get you off uh, right now. I mean, well, not in that way. That's that's the British term. Um, I'm not going to let you leave the show right now. I'm going to try and formulate my thoughts, and I'm going to go right into our mid-ad break. We're going to be talking about pa- uh, Patreon. We're going to be talking about Discord. Now we do this from time to time, and uh, for all of you new people out there in the chat, because I do see some new names, we have a Patreon that uh, where people can subscribe and support. Mission Log and what we do. You can do that at patreon.com slash mission log. And you can choose different tiers of support, uh, whether or not it is at the the base $1 level where you can peel potatoes for us, but also join in on our Discord. Uh, and our Discord is... It's something that has taken a fantastic life of its own. Uh, it's a fantastic community uh, built up by uh, fans like Paul here and um, several other fans that have called in on the show. Uh, Alan, who you're going to see next. Um, and we've built a community of fans for fans by fans and have just really embraced kind of like the culture of what do we do when we can't meet with all each other in person? And that's how it all started. It all started with basically the COVID lockdown of 2020 and has become something so much more magnificent magnificent and incredible that I could possibly imagine. And I thank all of you, the fans, for doing that. So if you would like to join us there, please visit patreon.com slash mission log. Check out how you would like to support us. And then again, for as low as $1 a month, you can join our Discord and join us in all the different sub chat threads that we have there. Also, every Thursday night, we have a live conversation with anyone who wants to join about the Patreon, uh, the uh, podcast release of that. Uh, the reason why I'm laughing is because I think this week is Faces. 
that should be an interesting episode. And then we also have new Wednesday night shows talking about Star Trek Strange and Worlds and the Orville episode. So there are a lot of uh, benefits and a lot of perks and a lot of content headed your way if you choose to subscribe to us. That's it. That's that's the uh, that's the message for this mid-show break. Let's get back to Paul because um, I didn't want to get him off, as I said before. So, um, were you able to digest everything? Were you able to filter everything down into one crystalline thought? There we go. Sorry, <laughs> um, I can't. Uh, yeah, the Patreon is full full in. Just the greatest thing. Man, one of the one of the best benefits of being a mission log person is all those people you get to meet and just candid conversations. Oh, geez, so much we talk about and friends you meet and eventually meet in person. So best best investment I've made in in Zoom, that's for sure, or whatever we call it. As it it's um Patreon then Discord. I didn't even know yeah. what Discord was, so shout out for that. Um I want to point out that if you watch this episode, it is very, very important that you watch the ready room associated with it. Um, Mr. Wheaton and Mr. Kurtzman, I believe, yeah, it's Mr. Kurtzman, have a great, I probably half an hour, and it's not even an interview. It's like this with people who ma- matter more to the storylines. We, we have a great time here talking about this and digesting the episodes, but these are the people who acted in and actually are designing. And it feels like an interview with George Lucas in, I forgot where I saw it, an interview with George Lucas in 1983, just as he's heading into, you know, um, developing some new stories. And wow, that's where we're at with Star Trek. What a great, great time for Star Trek. And uh, the insight that he gives on where they're going and the fact that he just talks about being a curator of this fine thing and moving it on. And it, it belongs to Gene Ronberry as a creator and us, the fans. And they're simply people who are, you know, managing it. And what a humble interview that comes from a remarkable person who's been under a great deal of duress and fandom, right? I mean, there are people who just have called for his, um, you know, his, uh, firing or whatever all that kind of garbage and it i mean what he's been fired a hundred times like at least a hundred times now and i i just have to um emphasize like please watch this one i don't get to watch them all but i also um was able to sit down and it is a really great interview i loved kurtzman's quote great science fiction has never been about the future um i think Go ahead, go ahead, Norm. No, it's just it always been allegorical about the present. I mean, like you know, that's that was the magic of the original series. I mean, it's the magic of when Star Trek does what Star Trek does right. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to kind of like attach to any one particular series, but you know, the original series obviously started that, you know, that momentum, and it's carried on across all the different series. Um, so yeah, and you know what? You're not the only two that are talking about it. I mean, there's a lot of people in chat that are saying like, you really got to watch this week's Ready Room. So, um, yeah, that goes that goes a long way with you know, um, you know, uh, showing that you know there's a lot of support out there for the ancillary material as well. You know, for these series. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, the um, the the best, uh, and I'll leave you guys with this. The the best description that he left this current Star Trek realm is it's like a box of crayons. People don't like every color in the crayon box. And then you pick out the colors you like and you get to play with them, right? Oh, man, it's just mm-hmm. amazing 
you know, uh, description of where we're at. And, and of course, Will Wheaton asked how big the box was. And he said it was 64 grand. So <laughs> not the big jumbo we, 128 with a pencil sharpener. Come feels on, like yeah. it's about, feels like it's about, I think eight is good enough for now. So with that, I'll pass it on to Alan and it's always a joy to see you, uh, Norman and Heather and, uh, yeah. look forward to next time. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for calling in my friend. Bye. Right. All right, Al, did we tech your tech? Yes. Yes, we did. <laughs> All right. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. I, I just want to echo the, the, the praise for this episode, for the ready room for this episode. Um, I was certainly touched that they, uh, about what, uh, what Alex said about seeing themselves as stewards of, of Star Trek uh, and that it's their job to you know not just take this thing but to have it uh expand on it and and have it ready for whoever or you know whatever direction comes next so i i I greatly appreciated that and it certainly you know regardless of what you may think of anything else that he's done i i think that he's been a good steward for star trek i mean you know the interesting thing is, is if not him, then who? Yeah. Right? And if, if not him, that's being, you know, directly in the line of fire by a certain percentage of the fan base, then who? It doesn't matter who's sitting in that chair. The crosshairs will always eventually find the person who's sitting in that chair. Yeah. So it might as well be him. Why not him? Right? Yeah. yeah. Everyone hated everyone hated Lucas when, when Lucas was in charge and putting out stuff that they didn't like. They, you know, they say bad things about... Kathleen Kennedy, I'm sure that they'll find fault with Dave Filoni at some point uh, and, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, those are people who have made up their mind already and they they don't bother watching any supplemental material or listening to podcasts and fan feedback or any any of that reading interviews. And you can tell. And I what really sticks out to me when I do invest the time to watch those like the interview with Alex Kurtzman is that they know what they're doing. They have deep respect for the franchise and for all of the people who have created Star Trek, not just one person here, one person there, but everyone. And they're continuing in so many of the traditions and reaching out to different people who've been in Star Trek, involved with Star Trek in some way to say, how can we bring you back in to do something small? And to me, there's just, I can completely understand if you don't like something in the show or an entire show, but to dismiss these people, the work they're doing and the pride and love that they take in being a part of the Star Trek franchise. It just, I don't have time for that. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's the, it's the sort of reductive, lazy discourse that is, you know, just sort of like, I'm trying to be right on the internet and Mm -hmm. screw anything else um, Mm -hmm. that, that, that we're sort of butting up against. And hopefully, you know, in communities like this and, and through the, the, the wonders of Patreon and discord, (laughs) we're getting to continue on having these conversations. So, Um, but uh, for, for this episode, let's, uh, let's talk about what a, a wonderfully ominous metaphor a floating city is. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like 
it's something that on the surface, no pun intended, um, seems, oh, this is great. This is, you know, it's so magical and whimsical and wonderful. Floating city, what could possibly be bad about that? Elysium, I'm sorry. (laughs) Until, yeah, (laughs) until you think about, you know, there's always something that's a cost to make that happen, whether it's a first servant or... Oh, let's say 50 years ago, there was a story about uh, a a slave race that was kept in mines. Um, The Cloud Miners doesn't get nearly enough respect, dude. I'm serious. That is a fantastic story. Um, Right now, uh, D&D fans, uh, the Critical Role show is doing um, a a miniseries about a floating city of wizards who are nearly about to cause their own apocalypse. So, you know, it's just... Oh, I mean, like Dalaran. Okay. So, exactly, yeah. Sure. Okay. There's, yeah, yeah these <laughs> these things come up a lot, is what I'm saying. But, yeah. but yeah, just sort of like, you know, it's just sort of like this grand symbol of opulence, but then what what is the cost? And is it, you know, they, they say... Oh, our society would would fall. We'd be we'd tumble into the the lava and the acid below. Well, you didn't always have a floating city. What did it take to build the floating city, and could you do it a different way? The first or, first servant. Yeah, or you know, you learned to survive. You you survived the the fire and the lava and the acid. You could do it again if it meant that kid didn't have to die. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of like, you know, what we were talking about with the whole, if you, if you choose to join the Federation, then maybe we can, all of the collective, yeah. you know, technologies from Vulcan, from Teller Prime, you know, from Andoria. We, that's the reason why the Federation exists is because we can get past mm-hmm. these and, and to be fair, though, and, and I want to contradict what I said, or I don't want to be a hypocrite about it, but yeah. in order to move past what the Federation believes are certain barbarisms, um, you know, outside of their membership, at least they can provide you with the alternative to something that we don't understand from this other member race culturally. Yeah. You know, so there's there's that opportunity. And I think that that's something, again, with the allegory between Pike and Alora, just a relationship, a bridge that couldn't be um crossed between the two of them yeah well and they've and they 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 she says oh well we've tried we tried to find different ways but yep this is the way this is the way that we get to have our floating cities and we want to have our floating cities so sorry it's like you know you you it's to the point where they're not even sad about it anymore it's not they've they've found a way to to celebrate this terrible thing that they've done and you know, God, it just, you know, it makes you think about all the ways that, you know, and this, this may be, this may be a hot take. This may be a controversial thing to say, but it really makes you think about all the ways that we sacrifice children in our society today. You know, we sacrifice kids for, uh, environmental we sacrifice uh kids for the fantasy that we can live in a society with guns we sacrifice us you know kids for health care and for public policy and all of these different things that you know we've just decided oh, 
well, there's just no other way to do it. I guess they have to die. And that's mm. really, really freaking sad. And, you know, when she's saying, you know, oh, don't tell me that there's, you know, no child who's ever died for your society, for your federation. I almost wish that, that, that they hadn't have said your federation. I wish they would have said your society because she's talking to us. True. She's talking to every single one of us. And what, what has our society decided is just okay that we're going to live with uh, in order for, you know, these things that we deem to be absolutely necessary for our way of life. So <laughs> sorry, the, sorry, it's not a song this week, guys. No, next week. Next week is the song. Yeah. This okay. this week is the uh, is the serious. Next week. So is can I quickly say one more thing before we take our, our last caller? Um, something yeah. else that the episode left me with outside of, you know, these uh, comparing it to gun control, stuff like that, is that there's also just a lot of ugliness in the world. And I wish that we would have gotten a conversation that that brought up some of the things that we talked about um, with there being another option. But at the same time, there are just really ugly, ugly things, ugly people. Again, we've got the question that Norm has asked, like, how ugly really is it? Um, but at the end of the day, there are some things that that you just that's how bad it is and you can't control. And so I, I almost feel like that message was mixed in there as well. Um, and this this makes this episode like Strange New Worlds is Tuvix. Because I will never stop talking about the moral dilemma of the episode. Um, like I said, as long as Star Trek shall live. So I just, I feel like it, it touched on so many different things. Again, whether or not it's, it's written to represent things happening in our world, things happening in the U.S. Yeah. It can gl- definitely be applied. Yeah, or globally, it doesn't necessarily have to be one particular, you know, nation state or, or, you know, political agenda or body. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, we are getting a little bit close to the end. I want to make sure absolutely. that John gets enough time. But Alan, thank you for your words. Um, thank you for your articulation. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. No uh, worries. Thank you for sharing that for us, man. Yep. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again next time. All right. See you, man. I appreciate your call. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, last caller, Earl, let's serve up John Arminio to serve up John Arminio to the Mission Log Callers. Hi. Uh, Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, um, you know, I did think this was a really powerful episode. I know there's a lot of heavy topics going on, and I just want to thank Alan for speaking to that because I, you know, totally agree. And, and, you know, it's not just even about people dying. It's just, you know, how many people are going to work 14 hours a day and pee in bottles in an Amazon warehouse so we can get tube socks in 24 hours Um, or how many neighborhoods were the victim of redlining. So, you know, we get a a highway in a convenient location. You know, there's so many segments of our society that are just so out of sight, out of mind. Um, So of course, like with Pike, you know, when that is put in front of us, we're horrified by it. Um, so, you know, like when there's news footage of a child killed in a drone strike, we're horrified, but it's still going on all the time. Um, 
and so yeah, it's just it's this weird bit of human psychology that um, when we're faced with the the visual horror of what our society requires, we we're you know we're like Pike, we're taken aback by it. But um, if it's just going on in the background, we're sort of um, it, immune to the horror. Uh, so I appreciate this episode for sort of illustrating that. This is a question that uh, I had my notes. I haven't had a chance to to bring it up, but it seems uh, relevant now. So I said, what is Starfleet's reach in this episode? Does Starfleet, uh, in this case, Pike, have the right to interfere in cultural affairs regardless of Starfleet's jurisdiction based on his own personal morality? If the roles were reversed... If an alien ambassador felt an Earth custom were distasteful enough to refuse a relationship with the Federation, would Pike or Federation diplomat capitulate just to appease the moral outrage of the aliens' protest because they wanted something from the aliens so badly? Yeah, and that's you know that that's a question for the bad morals, I guess. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's you know that was. Um, Insurrection? Yeah, that was a subject of subject <laughs> insurrection. And, yep. and yeah, like, um, if it wasn't one child, if it was 100 children every year, or 1,000 children every year, or a million children every year, at, at one point, the Starfleet say, all right, we have to interfere and stop this. This is no longer a distinct characteristic of this culture. This is a war crime or, or genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's something conveniently metaphorical about one child a year um, that allows us to just be horrified and then like move on to the next episode. Um, but yeah, like, you know, another civilization coming to us and challenging our own, um, you know, cultural collective sins. Uh, that's something that Star Trek typically doesn't explore it's usually us going out and finding a society that's a dark mirror to contemporary earth but yeah i think that would be um an interesting conundrum especially in a a post-scarcity future i i guess uh deep space nine was at least uh, attempting to do that in, in a lot of ways to show mm-hmm. sort of the darker side i, I don't know how that led to a lot of my frustrations with the show. Like anytime section 31 popped up, that was always kind of frustrating. I, um, I think, in, I think in this episode, what, what I think it has done successfully over anything else mm-hmm. is to engage people in conversation. Yeah. That's what star Trek has always done at its best. And I said this before it's, 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 I think it's um, admirable that the, the episode tried to approach this in a way that in the way that maybe it hasn't been seen in a while because it's not like the most original trope when it comes to science fiction narratives or storytelling i mean heather and i have already brought up several examples of that however there are always generations of fans newer generations of fans especially newer generations of star trek fans that are coming onto this star trek um into their star trek fandom with these new series and they may have never been exposed to um a the pretext of something like this before in any of star trek because they haven't seen any of these other episodes that are allegorical the same way this is so i think that it's um i think it's you're we're going to see like certain storylines certain narrative threads that maybe we have seen before in certain other forms but 
at the same time, though, I, I find it very responsible for the writers uh, to to repackage and repurpose this for generating conversation with new fans now, because that in and of itself is traditional to Star Trek. Just with the amount of conversation that we've had here, which has been very difficult conversation to have, very passionate, very articulate, you know, and uh, at some times softly confrontational because we're all seeing things from different points of view. We're seeing things from this, the lens of what Star Trek means and the future of humanity that we are supposed to achieve. So when we see something like this, we believe that the Federation should be championing the morals of our causes in the future and when they don't how does that make us feel you know and i think that that's what we're reacting to right now we're reacting to let me bring it back to justice in the next generation you know picard basically used the might of his galaxy class starship to save wesley from a legitimate crime you know, he, you know, the, uh, what is it? The, the ignorance of the law isn't the, isn't defense of the law. So even though that Wesley didn't see that sign and crush those flowers, they had every right to exact their planetary law on Wesley. The reason why Wesley didn't die that day is because Picard had the bigger guns, period. Right. You know, I know people don't like hearing that. I've had this discussion with people all the time, but like, you know what he did? He said, well, it's nice that you have those laws, but we're not going to let you enforce those laws today because my morality is greater than yours. That's what Card said in the end, you know, in, in no uncertain terms. And Card's like, think about that when you want to join our federation, right? And Wesley, don't run into any other plants anymore. Right? So, Pike, you know, Pike could have done that. Uh, Kirk said the same thing to the Hawkins in Mirror Mirror. Like the Hawkins said, you can take our, our dilithium crystals by force. And Kirk said, but we won't. Consider that. Right. It's not about the bigger guns. It's about creating relationships. And I think that that's where Pike is in this tenuous situation because he knows that somewhere along the line, maybe that relationship may not work. And he saw that with Alora because she was the advocate of their culture. So that's, that's where I think that um, you get to that point where Picard says, no matter how, no matter what you do, sometimes you just lose. Right. And Pike lost. In this in this case, and you know that that is one of the things that I appreciate about Strange New Worlds is definitely the performance of Anson Mount as Pike, because mm-hmm. like Picard, we can see him episode to episode struggle with you know Picard's innate sense of justice and morality and determination to negotiate, 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 and in Strange New World, Pike has this you know pervasive sense of optimism that runs up against his knowledge of his, you know, for once, for one, his destiny of, you know, that he, he sees his future and, and his sort of uh, inevitable death, but, but also the reality of um, space exploration and uh, military conflict and societies like, like this one. Um, and, and I also appreciate the show being able to go from Spockamuck to this one, um, in a, in a way that you know we haven't seen in Star Trek in a long time, uh, and and so being able to show the the breadth of experience of this crew, I I, I really appreciate. Yeah, I mean, this is um, again, it's 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 a sad thing that we're already talking about episode six going into episode seven this Thursday of this week. Um, you know, there's that's we're getting to the seventy percent mark, which is yeah. you know 
very much quickly heading towards the 100% mark. But, you know, the great thing is, is, you know, we're going to have a chance to like watch all of this in the context of what we do um, over and over and over again as fans. Um, But that's one, I'm going to give you like uh, just a minute here, John, one last thing to wrap it up. If you have one last uh, thought. Um, I just think, you know, watching these, these episodes, it's clear that, you know, the, the strength and weakness of Stranger World is that it is very much sort of shackled to the legacy of the original series just because it's sort of a prequel to the original series starring a character from the original series. Um, but it's also used that to its, its advantage in sort of carving out its own legacy in that era. And um, I, I was, as much as I'm hesitant to, to enjoy both Star Trek and Star Wars sort of doing prequels to prequels to prequels and, you know, mining nostalgia. I, I think that the execution of this show so far has just been really excellent. And I've just been enjoying it immensely so far. Awesome. And also thank- this, this discussion that Mission Longest provided. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for calling in and thank you for adding to our discussion. It's been a, it's been a pleasure as always, John. Thank you. All righty. Um, Heather, we have come uh, to the end of our episode. And it again, we uh, said this offline, it's going to be an episode that's going to be full of um, very like passionate and articulate, uh, you know, feedback and responses. It's been uh, nothing short of that in the chat. You guys have been fantastic. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to kind of like scroll back and uh, respond to some of these comments because, you know, we, we are so grateful for all of you to be here to you know, to be with us on your Monday night and to share in your comments and your thoughts of obviously what was a, a very challenging episode to digest. Um, Heather, any last thoughts before we close? You're ma- I'm sorry, Heather. We uh, TK421, why aren't you at your post? <laughs> Thank you. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, so usually when I watch a very heavy episode of Star Trek, I like to follow it with a not so heavy episode of the Orville. Uh, but this last, this week's episode was uh, not heavy, heavy, but not, not light enough. So I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do some nice things for myself after watching this episode, um, and probably still talk about it all over the internet and in discord with people because I've watched it five times now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and I just love hearing the different perspectives. Um, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's the new two bigs for me. And it's any time that you can do that and open up conversations with fans is that's what I'm here for. So I, I haven't seen the credits for next week. Um, the preview, I heard it might be a law on episode focus, mm, but okay. I guess we will see. Well, I think that uh, again, with, something as um, as thought-provoking as this episode is, I think that uh, the one thing that we all really need to keep in mind to, in order to perpetuate the positivity of our fandom is to make sure that when we're engaged in discussion, either here or online or on Twitter or on Discord, wherever this conversation may take you, let's just all take a collective breath, sometimes step back and take a look at the different perspectives of what this conversation and the discord is going to be about, because it's about seeing the different perspectives, whether right or wrong, but trying to find the truth somewhere in between, whether it's a personal truth or an actual truth in and of itself. So thank you everyone for joining us for this fantastic conversation. Thank you, Heather, for being here, for, for sharing this, this episode and this moment with all of us. Mission Log Live is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. 
technical production on Mission Log and Mission Log Live by Earl Green, the master of the green room himself. Be sure to visit podcast.roddenberry.com for the latest from Roddenberry Podcasts. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, give us a look at patreon.com slash mission log. Thanks again to Heather for being here with us this week. And thanks to everyone who joined us live here in the chat or who will join us later for their own chat. We look forward to reviewing episode seven of Star Trek Strange New Worlds with all of you here on Mission Log Live next week. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.